Hey, Avdi. Yes. How come your sound is so good? <laughs> it is good. As opposed Ge- to... Genetics. That's <laughs> 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 awesome. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This episode is sponsored by JetBrains, makers of RubyMine. If you like having an IDE that provides great inline debugging tools, built-in version control, and intelligent code insight and refactorings, check out RubyMine by going to jetbrains.com ruby. This podcast is sponsored by New Relic. To track and optimize your application's performance, go to rubyrogues.com slash newrelic. Hey everybody and welcome to episode 81 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel we have Avdi Grimm. Hello, hello. James Edward Gray. I'm so excited to be on the Turbo Links episode. Josh Susser. No comment. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv and this week we have a special guest, Aaron Patterson. Hi, this is Avdi Grimm. So it's been a while since you've been on the show, Aaron. Do you want to just uh, quickly introduce yourself for the handful of folks who haven't seen you speak at the myriad conferences you've been to? Sure. Uh, my name is Aaron Patterson. I work on the Rails core team and the Ruby core team, and I tweet as Tenderlove. I, I don't know what else to say about myself. How's that? Ruby core team, do you speak Japanese? I do, yes. It's true. and I only participate in Japanese too (laughs) intentionally so that nobody can understand what I'm saying (laughs) and by nobody you mean neither the Japanese speakers nor the English speakers right exactly yes because my my Japanese is only good enough that it's good enough to get myself into trouble but not good enough for anybody to understand me (laughs) but the truth is Aaron only learned Japanese because it annoys Ryan Davis (laughs) <laughs> Actually, the reason I learned Japanese was in order to read Ruby documentation. <laughs> That's kind of sad. It's pretty hardcore. <laughs> well, I thought I, I just thought all this crap online was like, what are they? You know, like all these blog posts, all this documentation stuff. And I'm like, what are they saying? What are they saying? I must know. And then so mm. I'm like, I may as well learn this. So I decided to. But now I just continue to learn it because um, I. I've been studying it for like six years, and I'm still not good enough to read the documentation. <laughs> wow. So, that was my so, experience. Yeah. So, um, anyway, we, we brought you on to talk about Rails 4. Can we do best okay. of parlay first? Yeah, we could do that. Okay. Best of parlay this, this uh, past week, in my opinion anyway, was a thread about method ordering. And I liked it because it's a topic that for some reason, I didn't really have an opinion on yet. And it was basically about like how you order the methods inside your classes. Do you put them in alphabetically or do you sort them by, you know, put the, the, like the outermost methods, top level API methods first, and then the implementation of the method after and various permutations on that that people brought up. So, um, it was an interesting read because it's interesting reading about, you know, the, the thought process that goes into different choices, even in, in little things like that. Uh, and so. If you want to enjoy other fine discussions of of uh, programming minutia like that, uh, you should check out the Ruby Parley mailing, mailing list, which uh, can be found right on our homepage, right, Chuck? Yep. 
yeah, you just go to rubyrogues.com, sign up. All right, well, um, let's go ahead and jump into the episode. So Rails 4, not to be confused with Rails 2.3.5, right? Oh, our right. little Rails is growing up so fast. I remember when it was just 0 0.13. Well, it's Rails 4, Rails 4 for you and me, the uh, official title. <laughs> <laughs> I like it, it, I, I have that album with Marlo Thomas. <laughs> So I, I am kind of curious as to what everyone's first version of Rails was. I'm pretty sure mine was like 0. Dot, I don't know, it was like 0. 0.8 or 7 or 13. I don't know. It was way back when. Yeah. 2005. Aaron, what was the first version of Rails you played with? Uh, 0. Dot something around 2005 yeah. as well. 2005 or 2006, yes. Oh. I can't remember exactly the version. I don't know. I mean, I was kind of... At the time that it came, it was it was being you know first coming out. I was sort of watching from afar because I, I wasn't being paid to write Ruby at the time. Um, but uh, I think like the first when I first started getting paid to write Ruby, I worked on some apps that that were still uh, like point nine or something. I'm not certain. So I got I got involved in two thousand six. So you guys are old, and uh, I think it was one dot one or one dot that I was first exposed to. What about you, James? I played with some early versions just kind of on the side, but I, I definitely didn't use it for anything real until about 1.2 or so. Yeah, I think actually I, I never actually wrote any production code with it until 1.2 or so as well. Like I was only playing with it. In fact, I actually got it working with Oracle in the 0. Point whatever days. It was pretty ridiculous. That is ridiculous. So yeah, nowadays, my God. you work on it almost all the time. You get to play with all the versions. Yes, I do work on it. I do work on it almost all the time. When I'm not doing Ruby core stuff, yes, pretty much. So in Rails 4, since we're about to go to another big version, what are the major changes that you guys have been working on? The major, I don't know, like, I guess it, I guess it depends on what you mean by major, like, as far as uh, stuff like major code changes, I don't think there's too much under the hood. At least nothing that would nothing that should cause um, backwards incompatibility. Like if you have troubles upgrading your app, it's most likely just a bug, and you should probably report it. Right? But I guess. Some things we can think of, or I, I'm trying to think of stuff off the top of my head. We moved, we've moved tests around, so the directory structure is changing. I guess Did, we're gonna have. Can you can you say more about that? It's like you you restructured it to be more like RSpec, where it's focused on models and controllers rather than rather than functional and unit. Yes, yes, exactly. Oh, cool! I've been waiting for that for years. Yes, that is uh, that is what is happening, and like. Are you it, still gonna have a place for the? Uh, for proper integration and acceptance tests, though? I don't think we have... I can't remember if we have an acceptance directory, but we are going to have integration. It's going to be, like, models, uh, controllers, and integration, if I remember. Features? Uh, helpers. A helpers directory, too. Right. Uh, was, was there a features one? I don't think so. Okay, maybe that's just from Capybara. Yeah, that's the... We ain't got no it does kind of coordinate nicely with the the new Capybara release, which which finally moves from from spec requests to spec features, which makes way more sense. The, okay, 
So, Aaron, the thing that I really want to know is what got taken out. What got taken out? Um, Did, didn't some stuff get pulled out into Jones? Uh, damn, I should have been but, more prepared for this. Yes. There's, uh, a, there's some like stuff Sprockets? No. Well, no, it was a gem. It was already a gem. Sprockets Rails is gone. But I think it's just because that's just because some of the Sprockets stuff has moved. Or the the Sprockets Rails integration stuff just got pushed up to the Sprockets gem. Okay. Uh, so, well, I, so I, I had read something that the asset pipeline stuff got pulled out into a separate gem so that it could be maintained on an independent release cycle. Mm, yeah, well, I don't think that's... I mean, I guess it's technically true because the Sprockets Rails stuff is gone, but okay. uh, it's... I. I don't know. I don't think it's any more. It's it's not any more uh, removed than it was before. Like Sprockets Rails was super tiny. It was just like a little bit of integration between Sprockets and Rails, and now that stuff has just moved into Sprockets. So okay, so it's just being in a managed in a different code base or a different project. Yes, exactly. Okay, okay, so, but your gem file will look the same. Yes, pretty much. Okay. okay. Sprockets. Okay, so they renamed some test directories and removed some integration code. That took about a year. So. Yes. <laughs> it, I, I read something about there being a new policy around deprecations. A new policy around deprecations. Yes. Yeah. The good news is they're going halfway to Simbar. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean by halfway to Simbar? Or Semvar or whatever. Oh, halfway to Semvar. I see what you're saying. Oh, uh, I guess I don't. There's no. I don't actually think there was a policy change. I think the problem is that like most people, there was never a policy change. It's just that we didn't have a consistent. The people who have commit bit didn't have a consistent idea of what deprecation meant. If that if that makes any sense. Like now it's just completely stated so that everybody who has commitment knows exactly how we have to deprecate stuff, which is okay. supposed to be closer to Semver. Yes, it is. Closer. So it's supposed to be, it's supposed to be that way. And we're just explicitly stating it so that it's clear among the core team, like, well, among the committers, I mean, there, okay. well, that's have, important. yeah, we actually have, so I don't know if people know this in general, but we actually have a lot more committers than are on the core team. So I think there is maybe, I'm totally guessing here, like maybe 12 or 13 committers. And, and to be honest, I don't actually know what the difference between a committer and core team member is. One person has a picture on a website. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm sure it's more important than that. Is it? No, I have no idea. Like, as far as I know, there's difference. I didn't get a membership card or anything. My impression is that committers can't do anything without a chaperone. No. <laughs> I was like a committer for quite a while before before um, I was a core team member and I just did stuff. It doesn't matter. I think yeah, I, they're just going <laughs> to back out anyway. I I have, I have no idea what the difference is. I guess maybe it's like, maybe it's, um, if there are larger decisions to be made about the framework, supposedly the core team members are more important. I don't, 
but I don't even know if that's true because like I I don't know. I listen to I try to listen to all of the people, so I nobody's opinion is more important as far as I know, except for DJJ. <laughs> mumble uh, mumble. <laughs> but, so, but by the way, speaking of of releases, I hear that there was a DHH 2.0 released in the last day. What? Uh, yeah, David had a kid. Really? Yeah, Colt Handmeyer. Colt. Yeah, Colt Handmeyer Hansen. He just tweeted it. So, like, uh, Mazel Tov, David. Wow. Good for him. Royals and David are growing up. <laughs> yeah, talk about an un unannounced release. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea. I mean... Well, well, I, I, I gotta say, it's kind of daring of him to do this release without a beta beforehand, but... <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's weird. <laughs> so, speaking of betas, how how is the... Um, has the release process for Rails, uh, is that going to be changing for Rails 4.0, or is it going to follow uh, pretty much what's happened in the last couple of releases? Uh, I think it's going to be pretty much the same. We'll just do, we're just going to ship betas and then ship final at some point. I don't know. It's. I think we're going to keep it about the same. I would like us to have more regular release cycles, but we don't have a dedicated, like, we don't have a dedicated release manager. I think kind of sucks. Uh, I tried I tried to be the dedicated release manager, but it's insanely stressful. I had to stop. <laughs> this is not no. surprising. It's super stressful. Like you put out you put out a release and it's like you put out some betas or you put out some release candidates and you're like please test, please test, please test and very few people actually test it. There's always that one guy who sends a word correction and like the release note. Yeah. Thing is, like people do test it, but I think it's hard because um, so you can't you can't say like we usually put a deadline on it. Like okay, we'll give you you know three business days basically or seventy two hours or something like that, and people will say like well that's not enough time. But the problem is like it doesn't matter how much time you give, it's always going to be not enough time for some people, right? And you got to get it out. You got to get it out at some point, right? So it's like it's basically like a damn if you do, damn if you don't situation. So <laughs> some, people, some people won't have time to upgrade, and then of course, like those people find the bugs or whatever. I mean, to be honest, I look at the release candidates as more of a like cover your ass thing. Like somebody comes along, they're like, "You completely broke our application." And you can say, "Well, we released, we did our best. We released a release candidate and asked for feedback." Right. So, I mean, at least you can like say, "We try. We did our best." So. Well, and hey. on top of that, I just want to chime in and, and remind people: look, if you have an app that you're planning on upgrading to Rails four, go test it with the release candidate. Oh yeah. I, I think I think that's kind of what you're saying there, Aaron, but. You know, it's out there exactly for that purpose. And make well, sure that it's stable before you push it to production. Definitely. Yeah. Test with test with Git, too. Like, we keep, we try to keep uh, Master pretty stable. So it's, uh, I'm not going to say rare, but it's infrequent that uh, Master just doesn't work. Right? We keep it, we try to keep it pretty stable. 
Now, now what about what about beta versus release candidate? That have you been finding in the last release cycle or two that people have been doing more te more testing of the of the new release before you get to the release candidate, or does everybody just wait until they see a release candidate to try it out? Uh, I think it's about the same between them. Really, I think the main factor is just advertisement. Really, like if you get getting the word out, like blog posts tweets, mailing lists, all that, getting the word out is what really has an impact on testing, I think. So, so Aaron? Yes. We, we have, you know, a couple thousand people who are listening to you. Would you like to say something to them? Yeah, please test Edge Rails, please. <laughs> so Ed, Edge Rails is not the release candidate. Edge Rails is go and get, get clone Rails and do stuff with that. Change your gem file, point at git. Yeah. yeah, you can just in your bundler uh, gem file that comes with Rails that one of the commented outlines shows you how to switch to Edge Rails. Yeah, and then you just do a bundle update Rails, yep. and it'll pull it down. Yep. So one other thing that I've seen that I wanted to ask you about, and it's related to the test structure, but it's more about mini test versus test unit. Yep. I understand that that was a change that. Rails 3 still use test unit by default, and Rails 4 will use mini-test spec? Yes. Was was there something that informed that decision, or did you just have some feedback from people saying, we want it, or what? It's uh, about time. <laughs> you have a point there, James, but I want to hear what Aaron has to say. I just committed it without asking anybody. <laughs> <laughs> And, folks, this is why Aaron will be kicked off of the core team by the time you hear this episode. <laughs> He'll be reduced well, like, to committer status, which we've established is terrible. <laughs> yeah, so but he, we've also established he can do whatever he wants as committer <laughs> status. So. Uh, so so test unit, test in Ruby, test unit is mini-test. It's, it's a subclass. Like, it's actually a subclass of mini-test. So all I really did was just change change Rails's. Uh, so Rails provides a, a test class like Active Support uh, test case. Mm -hmm. All I really did was change its superclass to Mini Test, and actually, uh, Mini Test spec is just a subclass of Mini Test test case. So all I did was change Active Support's class to subclass from Mini Test spec. So it's not like I mean, everything is completely backwards compatible. You just get this, you get specking for free, basically. I was going to say, doesn't that change the flavor of the tests completely, though, since you now have the, the mini-test spec DSL that you're writing in instead of actually, you know, building the class and calling it test underscore, 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 underscore. Somebody, somebody kick Chuck. And, 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 and then, you know, doing assertions instead of examples? It's optional. You can do it either way. Once many tests um, spec has been loaded, both are loaded. So if you define a class and use the test underscore, that works. And if you use the spec syntax, it'll define the class for you. What do the generators give you? Do they give you example DSL flavor or do they give you flavor? Uh, they, give you, they give you exactly what... Rails used to give you, which was the normal classes. But the thing is, like, if you remember, there's there's some stuff in Rails, like doing test, and then you give it a string, and then you do a do, right? Right. 
Tales already had kind of a little, like, a little bit of DSL type of stuff. Right. But what was nice about changing it to mini-test spec is that we could define that DSL in terms of mini-test spec. So basically all those methods just turned into, like, some aliases. Right? Gotcha. Mm-hmm. I have to say that I really like the approach because, as James said, you can do e- you can do it either way, and you can mix the asserts in with your example uh, notation. So you can do a dot must equal, or you can do an assert equal, and get what you want out of it. Yeah, and there's no like you're not you're not actually punished for using one versus the other. They're about the same. Like as far as performance is concerned, they're about the same. I think. I mean. I see somebody, so I figured since everything was backwards compatible, I just slipped this in just because it's completely backwards compatible. You could write it exactly the same, but now you just get this extra feature for free. So I predict, or I at least hope that once Rails 4 comes out, somebody will write a generator that's like, okay, generate generate spec style tests now. Mm-hmm. And, and what about the tests for Rails itself? Have they been modified to take advantage of mini spec or like mini test or mini spec? No, no. Is that a goal for the for the code base to, to move the tests to take advantage of that stuff? I don't like spec style tests. Well, uh, but I'm even, <laughs> okay, sure. I mean that's fine, but there's stuff in mini test that is a superset of what's there in in the test unit API. Um. I, well, we've converted, I mean, all the Rails tests use Active Support Test Case as mm-hmm. the base. So uh, we are we're completely switched to mini-test. There's no uses of, there's no uses of um, test unit in Rails Master anymore. Okay, but, but is there like some added value that you could take advantage of in, in mini-test that is, wasn't already being provided by uh, Active Support Test Case? Maybe some, uh, maybe some of the benchmark methods, maybe. Yeah, there's like there's benchmark methods. Also, if you're on a Mac, Control T is is pretty nice. That will display the current test that you're on. So like, let's say you have let's say you have a test and it's way too slow and you don't know what's going on. You don't know what method it is. You hit Control T and that sends an interrupt. And mini tests will actually trap that signal and then tell you like what what test you're currently running, so you can get some visibility into what's going on. Spiffy. That's one thing I like. Okay. So, it's nice. Aaron, I want to switch the topic a little bit, if you don't mind. Some of the new things in Rails 4 have, have raised kind of some questions. Like, I think we can all agree TurboLinks has been a little controversial in its introduction. Uh, Just so I'm clear, that's a combination of an Atari Lynx and a TurboGrafx-16, right? <laughs> yep, that's it. I want one. <laughs> um, but also there's the new, like, um, you know, routing concerns, which I, I don't think anybody has a problem with, but um, I also wouldn't say it's, like, a wickedly popular library with 503 uh, total downloads, you know. They're very concerning. <laughs> so I, I guess my question is, it seems like Rails used to be a, uh, well, I, I think DHH has described it uh, several times as a place where the cultivated technologies are brought together, you know, that after 
yeah, this oh. is good and people do that. But it doesn't seem like that's happening as much. Am I misunderstanding? Yeah, no, I don't think you are. I mean, like, I guess it's like, oh boy, I'm trying to figure out a nice way to say this. Hmm. <laughs> just, just say it how it is, and we'll sugarcoat it for you. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> it's stuff that DHH likes to use. So, like, they needed a need for, they needed a need for, or they needed concerns in Basecamp, and so they used it. Or they used Turbolinks in Basecamp, so it's put into Rails. A lot of stuff like Turbolinks came from PJAX, I guess, so a lot of it's been tested in production. They use it in production. Uh, the concerns, like, I think the routing concerns, those are... So I actually think the API is kind of weird. I'm not a huge fan of concerns, but the reason this is this is, this is like mix-ins for routing, right? Yeah, like you could say you can say like, okay, I'm going to reuse this particular block, right? Like this this one, I'm going to share this route among a bunch of different routes. It, I think really what it is is it's showing that thing that concern thing is showing weakness of the DSL. Yeah. The, the one thing that that looked particularly useful for to me was being able to define that concern in an engine and then mix it in at various places in your uh, sort of resource hierarchy. Yeah. For, you know, you know, for instance, if you had some sort of like commentable thing in your engine, because yeah. your engine was providing commenting, you could drop that onto, oh, I have an image over here and I want to let people comment on it. I have a, bl a blog post over here. I want to let people comment on it. And 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 then your engine doesn't have to know about all the places that those things get sure. used. But the problem the problem is is like basically what it boils down to, in my opinion, what it boils down to is that all of these like this block style DSL is not very good for um, reusability and competition. Yeah, that's a good point. Right. Like <laughs> the thing is though, like I don't. I mean, I can about that all day. It's just I don't have a better solution for it, so I try not to complain about it too much. Well, I think like it's it's not actually a problem for me because I think like we can take those we can take that DSL and implement it under the hood in terms of you know good good objects, and then eventually expose a more OO style routing. Well, that's basically what Sinatra did, right? I mean, they started out with. I think they started out with the, the DSL, and then they kind of refactored, refactored things internally so that the DSL was was basically just an expression of a pretty cleanly put together object system. Exactly. And you know, and then if you if you found yourself in a situation where you needed to be more generic, more general than the DSL would let you be, you could just use the objects directly. Yeah, exactly. That's the thing. Like, I think a lot of people got all. When when DHH put that in, people like got into a huff because they're like, "Oh, this is you know, blah, so much complexity, blah blah blah." And really, like if you just think about it, it's like, well, we just need to refactor the internals because it's really just showing it's really just showing that we're missing we're missing a good you know OO system for doing reuse in our router. So I don't know, it takes work. 
<laughs> so, so I remember way back in Rails 1.0 days how the routing code was always the, like, here be dragons part of the Rails code base. Yeah. And uh, who was it? Ulysses, who was the the Rails core person who was most knowledgeable about that code. And... And and it's just always seemed to carry that along with it that every like every generation or so there's a new routing uh, you know there's like this huge work done on routing and it gets changed and then still nobody can understand how it works. Yeah, I think the problem is nobody's come up with okay if you go look in the routing code the nouns that are being used aren't very good. Like mm -hmm. that's a beef I have a lot of the time when working through Rails code. For example, like. Concern is a terrible name. I don't like that because I'm like, I'm concerned about many things. <laughs> I'm concerned about the environment. You're like, what What the hell does concern mean? But there's also stuff like, oh, specifically in the router, there's like route set. And I'm like, what is a route set? <laughs> and, then, and then not only that, but there's also, like there's maybe three or four different route sets. They're just under a different namespace. Right? So it's like, ooh, colon, colon, route set, and also bar, colon, colon, route set. I don't know if it's a fully qualified name, but that's like, that's like what it is. So there's multiple different ones with the same name, and you're like, ah! Gotta get them all. Yeah. So like, <laughs> yeah, collect the whole set. That's right. Basically, mm. needs to sit down for a minute and like, think, about, think about the actual words that we need to use, and then... You know, think about the requirements, then think about the actual words, and then split up the split up the objects. It's just, I mean, the thing is, like that stuff just takes time, and especially with an old, you know, a older code base, legacy code base like this, it's nobody wants to do it. You know? Yeah, uh -huh. that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so 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 slight, uh, so new topic. Uh, what about this uh, Matryoshka doll caching stuff? Uh, Matryoshka dolls, yeah. I love those things. <laughs> Who doesn't? <laughs> um, that is, it's. I don't. I, I don't know why we have to have fancy names for everything, like turbo <laughs> caching and Russian doll caching. All it is, Russian doll caching is a fancy name for a compound compound cache key. That's all it is. So. Ooh. The cache key, basically the cache key is calculated. It's a dependency graph of your templates, and the cache key is calculated based on that dependency graph. Wait, wait, wait. We, we, we've, we finally reached the intersection of naming and cache invalidation as being one problem. <laughs> wow. <laughs> does oh, that make Lord. it off by two errors? <laughs> so, so does it, you said it that it's like a compound key. Funny, but what I'm wondering is, so if you invalidate like the top level thing, do all the other things inside of it also get invalidated? Is that kind of the idea? No, it's the other way around. That's right. Yeah. Yes. So it's basically the key is the key is a combination of the itself, the the current template plus all of its children. So basically, so, if you you know if you had a project with to do lists and individual to do items. And you invalidate one of those items because that's down in the chain. That's going to invalidate that item, but it's also going to invalidate the the to do list that held that item, which is going to invalidate the project that held that to do list, etc. 
Does it trickle back down to get all the siblings as well? Well, see, the siblings are still valid, right? Because you, right. if you had a to-do list that was 10 items and you change one, the other nine can still be pulled from cash. So we don't want that invalidated, right? So, so basically, when it, when it uh, builds the new parent, the new parent still has the same key and references to the same children. Well, they all, so, so just think of it, basically, you need to think of your templates as a tree. So right. you have a, one template, and it references another template, and that, that, that other template that it references is a child, and that one can reference other ones, etc. You can have, like, a graph of these, a graph of these um, templates. And if the child, if it gets changed, then everything back up, back up the tree gets invalidated. But nothing below the tree will necessarily get invalidated. But this so, is the reason right. So I'm I'm just saying. So when something at the, the middle level gets reinstantiated, it just picks up the old children as its children as well that are well, still basically valid. it'll it'll run back through and re-render itself. So like the list will have to re-render itself. But as it goes to render those ten children, nine of them They're are still just in the cache, right? And then the one is a cache miss, and therefore the whole template has to be rendered, right? Yeah. It's good. Like, I think it's a very good thing. Yeah, no, I, I, I think it, it just seems like the most complicated thing about this feature is explaining it. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I think well, I, overall it's good because it means, generally speaking, if you start using some caches in your pages and you happen to nest that and stuff, Rails is going to do the right thing by default. Right. So, to me, yep. that's good. Yeah, it's a weird thing. Like, I guess, um, I don't know, compound compound cache key based on, you know, template relationships is not as sexy a name as Russian doll caching. Which is, by the way, the name Aaron voted for, so, you know. <laughs> Actually, I didn't know, like, I had no idea about this feature until it landed, and then... I looked at it and I was like, oh, this isn't thread safe. <laughs> and then I was like, okay, I guess I have to fix that. <laughs> so, so that brings up another issue then. Is, is Rails 4 thread safe and does it support concurrency nicely? Uh, yes. So we're removing the thread safe flag. I, I always wondered what thread safe did when it was not on you know it's like it's like okay now <laughs> i want rails to behave well but whenever i shut that off they revert to other code that does the same thing but behaves badly james <laughs> it's, a, it's a placebo it just makes you feel better I see. james that is exactly what i thought too i was like why this sounds like the stupidest flag in the entire world why would you have a code path that isn't thread safe <laughs> right. why would you ever turn the turbo button off yes exactly <laughs> <laughs> oh now i feel old okay because you get you get terrible mileage with turbo <laughs> <laughs> especially well, I, if you link it to something else it, it, it takes takes more lines of code per method you turn the turbo button off because uh, the game moves too quickly otherwise. Right. right? right. Commander right. goes too fast. <laughs> exactly. uh, but actually, let's see. What did it do? It's mainly mainly all that flag did was control code loading. 
like basically whether or not your code was eagerly loaded. And then the only major thing it added was the um, there's this thing called rack lock. I don't know if you guys have seen that. It's a thing that like basically it's a thing that takes out a lock before it does a request and then releases the lock at the end of the request. Okay. And I think somebody brought that up at Aloha Ruby. I did. Yes. I know. I'm just. Anyway. <laughs> It's well. It's like it's if you have that on and you're using a threaded web server, it means that you can only process one request at a time. Right. So yeah, we had to get rid of we had to get rid of that thing. So uh, so is is Racklock just gone from the code base now? Uh, not still. Like it's still there for a very small case, which is okay. All right, I have a quiz for you guys. Which web server? What is the most popular threaded Ruby web server? I think James is right. That's a good question. Most Webrick? Oh no, Webrick is is not threaded. Oh, Webrick, yeah. You got it. Yes, exactly. Webrick is the most popular threaded Ruby web server. Except that the problem is nobody knows that they're running Webrick. Okay. <laughs> so so if, right. if you push an application up to Heroku. So this is this is how I'm. I haven't actually taken a survey or anything. This is how I'm how I am guessing these numbers. If you push if you push an app up to Heroku, which I suspect lots of Rubyists have, test apps or whatever. If you push an app up to Heroku, what web server does it use? It uses Webrick. It uses whatever Rails like server uses, which is Webrick by default. Is that so, why they recommend that you install Thin or whatever if you want that? Yep, exactly. And I think what was happening is people were running people were running Webrick in production, and there were problems with Rails. Like Rails wasn't thread safe. That's awesome, right? So they were running Webrick and going, "What the what the hell is going on? My application is busted." And rather than figure out the thread safety issues, they just added a lock around the request so that you could only process one request at a time. And now, boom, your thread safe issues are gone. <laughs> So did you, when you removed that lock, did you have some thread safe issues that you had to resolve? Is that what happened? Uh, there were some, there are definitely some, but I mean, a lot of people, like, especially JRuby users are running threaded, threaded web servers, so we'd fixed a lot of those already. Right. There are, there are a few we still had to fix. So the, I guess, like, basically the one place, we still have rack lock, but we only use it if you're using Webrick in production. And that's basically that's basically to be backwards compatible with the people who are running Webrick on Heroku. Like people running, people running Webrick on Heroku are expecting it to do only one request at a time. So we're trying to make sure that those people are like this. This is an example of the crazy stuff we have to think about when uh, making a new release of Rails. Is like who's running Webrick in production? <laughs> you would think nobody, right? You'd think nobody, but Probably then, not. like, then when you realize that everybody who pushes up to her, pushes up without changing their profile or whatever, they're using Webrick in production. <laughs> so we have to think about those people and say, like, well, we don't want to break. Like, we don't. We don't actually want to break anybody. Like when we when we ship a new release of Rails, we don't want your app to break, right? We really, really, I mean, despite what happens in the upgrade, we really don't want your app to break. So 
we have to take into account crazy situations like this. So basically what will happen is if you're using WebRick in production, we'll insert rack lock. Gotcha. So Aaron, what, what have you worked on the most in uh, Rails 4? Um, live, live streaming stuff. Like, that's most of the work that I've done. Also, mainly bug fixes in bug fixes in Rails, some refactoring in uh, Action Pack, and then I guess Ruby 2.0 compatibility, pretty much. Tell us about the uh, live streaming. I wanted to stream live. <laughs> uh, like was this all motivated by uh, salami curing? Uh, no, no. It's motivated by me being annoyed that you can't uh, stream data out to clients from Rails. Like I wanted, I wanted to use server sent events, and you have to keep a socket open. And the other thing that annoyed me too is seeing like seeing people with um, Node.js going, "Oh, look, we can just write out." I'm like, "Well, you know, we can do that too." So I will make it work. That's mainly what motivated me. Actually, server set events is what really motivated me the most. I think that is an insanely useful feature. Yeah, they're pretty cool. All right, well, I, I think we're running out of time. Are there any other things, any other aspects of Rails 4 that we want to dig into? Ah, uh, Postgres. Postgres. Yay! Yes, Postgres! Like, huge, huge... Um, Changes in the Postgres adapter. Yay. Does it does it uh, default to Postgres or is it still SQLite? Uh, it's, it defaults to SQLite, but um, oh sure, get my hopes up. Anyway, it still uses SQLite by default, but um, there have been massive improvements to the Postgres adapter so that we can do custom. It can support custom data types in Postgres, but right, like like UUID. Yes. Which is which yes. is a native data type, yay. Mm -hmm. And and the JSON or HStore, I think both of those are both of those going in as well. Yep. JSON, HStore, IP addresses, pretty much any oh array Postgres array support. Um, so awesome. any anything that Postgres can support, like uh, I refactored it I refactored the Postgres adapter such that it's really easy just to add uh, add new data types. So it's like, I don't think we ship with GIS support, but it's really easy to add now. Like before, you would have to do a bunch of crazy monkey patches, but now all you need to do is just say like, okay, register this new data type. And that, that sounds nice. One, one question that I have about it is um, in other, let's say that you have this app and somebody else decides they want to run it on MySQL or something that doesn't have all these features, does it just gracefully fall back to using varchars or strings? Or are you just out of luck? You are out of luck. You're way out of luck. I mean, there's no, like, there's no way to keep that, there's no way to keep that consistent between databases. I mean, you'd have to say, like, okay, HStore work on Postgres. Well, now we got to port that over to MySQL. And also, the other thing is like on Postgres, you can do queries by the values in the HStore right. themselves, which would just be impossible to port to a different database. This is one of the issues that I've seen 
or that I've had with ORMs for a while is that most of them will just support the lowest common denominator between, you know, any of the major engines on the back end. And, and this is really kind of exciting to see because if you're using Postgres, you can actually use Postgres. Yeah. So with, well, a, think- with a Postgres array, you would be able to like assign a Ruby array to the attribute. And then when you read that back from the database, that attribute would return you a Ruby array. Yeah, it's exactly like it's it's as if you're using a serialized column. One thing that's kind of weird is like I don't know if we want to get into this sort of minutia on the Ruby Rogues here, but all the keys and values in an HStore are stored as strings. So even if you try to dump numbers or whatever, it'll you'll get back a string. Right. And uh, the reason is because we can't differentiate. Like let's say you actually stored the string literal one versus the number one, there's no way for us to differentiate those two, so you'll always get strings back. And I believe that's the same that's the same way with Postgres arrays. Gotcha. Yeah, but you can do it. That's what's cool. Yes, you can. Yeah, it's really awesome. You can store a JSON and then pull JSON back out of the database. It's actually really, really awesome. Is that is that your Postgres um, Rails four slogan? Yes you can. Yes you can. Yes, we can. Yeah, we use we use my or uh, SQLite in Dev, but I highly recommend Postgres in production for sure. It's awesome. All right, any anything else that we should know about? Any major changes to APIs? Things that got removed? Anything like that? Uh, let me think. We already went over. We already went over the test directory changes. Is is there anything new in Active Record? Uh, not really. I mean, all, all returns a relation now. Um, it's not like, whoa, is everybody there? We're here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We lost okay. Abdi. He'll, he'll come back. Uh, there's nothing, like, as far as active record is concerned, there's nothing like, nothing major. There's, there's small changes that make it a little bit nicer, but nothing like huge to announce besides really the PG, PG changes. Uh, what else do we have? Oh, strong parameters. We should probably talk about that. Yeah, mm, yes. That's kind of important. Well, I think it's very important. Strong parameters lets you... So it's basically another... It's, it's another defense against... Well, it's a defense against uh, people posting random parameters to you. Like, what's the name of the thing in the models? I can't remember the name. Mass assignment. Yes, mass assignment. It's mass assignment protection, and basically what it is is an API for you to say specifically what parameters you accept, right? Like you'd say, like, this action, I require that this action takes this particular parameter, and these are the other parameters that are allowed. Is this in the controller? Yeah, you you do this in the controller, and then you can just pass that off to the active record object. So... Now, now in the lead up to this, I remember there was um, you know, some modifications made to mass assignment protection that involved the use of a, of a named role. Does the um, strong parameters have that same sort of support for, for particular roles, or is that something that is just the controller deals with that? Well, the strong parameters is just something a controller deals with. Like basically, we'll check to see whether or not something is allowed. And, uh, Strong parameters tags 
something as allowed, and if Active Record gets something that hasn't been tagged as allowed, it'll raise an exception. Oh okay. wow, nice! It, it it sounds like one of the advantages of this, uh, you know, from my perspective, is that it makes testing a lot easier. I I often I think like a lot of people, I often ran into problems dealing with the mass assignment protection in testing, where I wanted to be able to set up objects, and I was trying to pass in a parameter hash or an attribute hash to initialize the object that was some protected parameter and you know, yeah that's never fun no this will make it a lot nicer and the thing is like what i actually like about the strong parameters is it's stuff that i've been doing i basically everybody has been doing this in their controllers anyway they've been saying like you're already doing it you're already saying like well these are the parameters that we want right you're already trying to specify the parameters that you want and if you're not doing that, you may be vulnerable to an attack, right? Everybody, everybody goes through and they look at it and say, well, we only want to accept these particular parameters. And if somebody is posting, like, a created update or something, we want to prevent that. So we're already doing these checks. But this is just a nice way to, like, do the checks. And also, if somebody, if somebody posts something that they shouldn't, you get an exception out of it. And you don't have to worry as much. So I'm I'm actually really happy with that. Oh, that, that's cool. awesome. We also have yeah. a, a queuing queuing system. Oh yeah, I heard about that. And that's we're still kind of we're still kind of polishing that up. Like I think that's actually our last blocker before we release a beta. Yeah, but even still, a, a common abstraction for queuing is 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 really nice, yeah. as opposed to having to build your own. Yeah. What I, what I'm what I'm excited about from that perspective is just basically a common interface to a queuing system. So we can all, you know, if you want to change from rescue to sidekick, all you need to do is do with it. Well, I guess they're already compatible anyway. But let's say you need to change from, I don't know, rescue to AMQP or something like that. Then all you need to do is change the backend. Right. You just pull in another adapter, and there you go. And the other thing that I like about it especially is like I don't want to run when I'm doing testing, like I don't want to make sure that I have a Redis server up and running. So in testing I just use an in memory queue. Right. So that's awesome. That, that's it, it, with the queuing stuff, is there any support for having a, a distinguished environment for the background workers? Or is that just something you have to cobble together yourself? for the job yeah uh, yeah like like having a different uh, a different uh, environment set up in your gem file so that you know if you if all you're doing in your background job is is mucking around with JSON then I see what you're saying no like I guess we don't we don't have anything explicitly for that I mean it seems easy enough to set up yourself so yeah sure I was, I was just curious if there was any sort of move towards establishing conventions around that. No, not yet. Not yet. Okay. I can I could definitely see it happening though, but I, you know, not yet. The great thing about the queuing API is that it begins conversations like this, right? Now we have this queuing thing which is becomes the standard way to queue and if you want to hook in, then you just hook in and then we can have conversations about, wait, when we're running workers, shouldn't we be able to trim out all the real stuff we don't need or whatever? Yes, exactly. It gives us well. It gives us a exactly what you're saying, James. It gives us a common like stepping stone to move forward. 
Like, this is a thing that we do. We all queue stuff. Everybody queues stuff up. So let's just make sure we have a common API for that. And now that we've moved forward to that step, then we can ask the next questions, which are, do we need to have an environment thing set up specifically for these? And just move on. Well, it sounds like a cool release. We're looking forward to it. When do we get it? We were supposed to get it in September. <laughs> uh, I think I, it's supposed to be this year. I mean, it's supposed to be. We're we're planning on having it done this year. We have like I think we have like one blocker left. So betas should be soon. I'm not totally sure. So soon-ish. How's that? Awesome. Soonish sounds great. Yeah, I love it. It's it's real commitment for me, you know. Soonish. <laughs> so everyone, if we don't have it by Christmas, just file a bunch of pull requests for Aaron. You know, he'd love, he'd love <laughs> to look at it. He's gonna get a whole bunch of pull requests that are just incrementing the version. <laughs> so, it, it, Aaron, I I do want to ask one one last thing about the um the drive towards the release and the community participation. Okay. Uh, yeah, at, like it, it. It seems like I saw a, a fairly concerted effort to get people involved in fixing bugs in recent releases. Yep. Uh, so, is there has there, there been that same sort of pitching in effort around getting four O out? Um. No, not really. Like we don't have a. We don't really. Mm, I'm trying to think of why we don't do that. And it's mainly because, I think it's mainly because we roughly sketch out what features we're going to have. But, like, for example, when we first started talking about Rails 4.0 features, I had no idea that, like, we never even talked about, like, um, oh, Russian doll caching, for example. Mm -hmm. That like, happened to show up. So it's really difficult. It's really difficult to say, like, hey, community, these are the things we want Rails 4.0. Do them. Because it just seems, I don't know, it doesn't seem like there's formal planning around what particular features are in the next version. Right. So if we had formal planning, then we could divvy up work. But we don't, so this is what happens. Is Ruby Core any more or less disciplined than that? Much more disciplined. Absolutely. So I have kind of, kind of a related question. Sorry. Go ahead. Uh, every week I, I pair with with somebody on some open source project. And I, by somebody, I mean I, somebody, somebody different on some uh, open source project. And a lot of times they're people who are, you know, are pretty new to the world of open source. Maybe they haven't um, gotten any commits in. And uh, a, lot of the, a lot of times um, what they want to work on is they'd really like to get to, to help Rails out. They'd like to do some kind of work on Rails. And I'm curious if you could give give people just some pointers for how to find a problem to work on, a bug or enhancement or whatever to work on uh, in Rails if they're just getting started. So I think the best thing, the best, I've been thinking about this lately because uh, I'm going to be working with some students here coming in January and they're going to work on Rails and I need to help them find the best place to start. And I think, basically, it depends on what you're inter interested in and what you're most comfortable with. Like, for example, myself, I started working on Active Record because I like working with databases. So that's where I dove in. And uh, mainly what you do, or what I did, 
is go look at the I would look at the action tickets, find one that seemed easy, and then basically try to fix that. Like reproduce, try to reproduce it, and if it was difficult to reproduce, then just move on to another one. Uh, and techniques for finding techniques for finding easy ones are like, oh, if they provide a test case, uh, or if the ticket is new because newer tickets are easier than older tickets. Besides that, I'm not, I'm not really too sure. Like, determining whether or not a ticket is easy is definitely comes from experience. I mean, and I don't, I don't know how to describe that experience. You can, mm-hmm. A lot of times you can tell by, like, um, the way the ticket is explained. You know, if it's kind of vague, I have this problem when and there's lots of code not related to the when or things like that or if it's more specific you know when i do this then this happens and you here's the minimal case that shows it you can usually tell if they've isolated the bug for you you know i like if you find the best thing is to find new tickets where they've isolated the bug like that but i mean those are those are kind of hard to find right they're rare yes yeah right i mean the first thing you can do is just ask on the ticket, like, hey, can you send us a repro for this bug? Like I said, I heard somebody at, um, in Scotland, at the Scottish Ruby conference, she wanted to start participating in Rails, and basically that's all we did was go through the, go through the ticket queue and be like, do you have a repro for this? <laughs> because most of the time, people don't really post repro steps. They just say, like, I have a bug. Mm. And you're like, cool. <laughs> I'm laughing because I worked QA for a year, and uh, yeah, we get those all the time. Well, I mean, that's like that's the way it is. You know, people need people might not know they're having problems and they don't know how to report the problem, so they just they just need to be taught how to do it, and then it's fine, right? So. The problem is, like, we just have to teach. We have to teach all these people how to do it. So a lot of our time is spent saying, "Okay, hey, can you give us a sample application?" Uh, but the thing is, people need to realize that even asking, like, if you come along and find a ticket that's not specific, like they haven't provided repro steps, even you just asking them for repro steps is a huge help for uh, the Rails team, right? Like, just commenting on the bug, saying, hey, can you provide us with a sample application that shows the broken behavior? Like, that's a huge help. So, basically, what we did when we were pairing is we would just go through, ask those questions until we actually found one that we could work on, and then we started working on that. But what helps with pairing, like, what you should do while you're pairing is when you find... uh, It's helpful to have a pair in those situations because you might not know if something is difficult. Like, I was pairing with her, and we got to a bug, and I was like, oh, man, this one's super difficult. And she didn't know why it was super difficult, because they gave they provided a repro, but it depended on so much code and so much, so much code and so much history that explaining why this is... The problem was more nuanced than it seems. And that's why I think pairing with an experienced person is, like, a good, you know, good thing. Have you ever thought of, like, a tag that people can put on on uh, tickets that might be easier for a, a noob to tackle? Yeah, yeah. We, we were actually talking about that the other day because 
I mean, I'm facing exactly these problems. Is I need to be able to split up tickets for new people. We're going to start tagging them with, I think, uh, BM will be it, and it stands for, like, Bug Mash, because it'll be yeah. easy. For <laughs> You know the BM traditionally stands for something else, yeah, right? I'm, I'm feeling it for David Brady here. An unfortunate acronym. Oh, no. You know what? Oh, okay. Yes, you're right. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah. We just saved Aaron from potentially stepping in poop. <laughs> All right. Well, should we get to the picks? Is there something else you wanted to say, Aaron? Yeah, I want to say happy Thanksgiving to everybody. Yay. Yeah, happy Thanksgiving. It's tomorrow for us, and it was last week for you. So, yeah, and, and, and for many people uh, listening, uh, you know, you'll have to come to America to enjoy our turkey fest. Sorry. <laughs> yes. I was, I, I'm working with a German company right now, and they're all, so uh, Thursday we thought we'd do this big thing, and it's like, <laughs> that's uh, not nope. a good day for me. Yeah. Yeah, I emailed the team I'm working with. They are in the U.S., and I was just like, so you're not going to see me for a few days. Call me if there's an emergency. <laughs> I took the entire week off, and I've been just playing video games all day. It's actually super nice. Awesome. Good for you. Of course, all day entails what? A few hours? No, like 8 a.m. until sleep time. I don't know. <laughs> nice. Awesome. It's Although I just, I actually just beat, I was playing Borderlands 2 and I just finished it, so I need to find something new, I think. Awesome. All well, right. well, maybe in our picks you'll find something. Yeah. <laughs> Is that a little foreshadowing here? Yes, and pick me last. I'm still trying to think of a pick. <laughs> Aaron, I gotta go search. <laughs> okay, my picks will be the ones that I wanted to pick in, Aaron. <laughs> All right. Well, let's let's do the picks then. Avdi, do you want to go first? Sure. Uh, let's see. Technical pick. I don't think I've picked this before. There is a gem called Squeal. S Q U E E L, and it puts uh, it adds a lot of niceties to doing SQL queries uh, to to Active Record. So basically. It adds stuff where instead of passing just parameters to where, to where, you can pass a block to where, and the block can basically just have Ruby code in it that compares things to each other using equals or lesser than or various other operators. And Squeal takes that and turns that into SQL. And, it, and it, it, yeah, it works really, really well. Um, it's so nice for building up queries. Um, it goes well beyond just like just that little bit of turning Ruby into C into SQL, but also makes it a lot easier to deal with joins and 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 uh, subqueries and basically makes some things possible that are that are if not impossible, then really hard in just like base Active Record and ARL, like doing non non doing less common jo types of joins, oring together two different you know, result sets and stuff like that without actually, you know, getting the results and then putting them together in, in memory, it, you know, actually turning it into a composite query that that does the right thing in SQL. I've been been getting a lot of use out of it on one project I'm working on for a client, and it's been a huge, huge help. And uh, another thing I've been getting a lot of use out of is Bullet Bourbon. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's better than the cheap stuff, and it's cheaper than the best stuff. 
Um, it's become kind of my uh, go-to everyday bourbon. So uh, B-U-L-L-E-I-T, I think, is is the spelling. Awesome. Josh, what are your picks? Uh, let me see. I'm, I'm just going to do one pick this week. Uh, we're coming up on the holiday giving season, and, and holidays can be very emotionally difficult for many people, especially gay youth who are trying to deal with family when family is one of the biggest emotional challenges for them. So there's an organization called The Trevor Project, which is supporting you know, gay, lesbian, transsexual, you know, et cetera, youth, um, and provides them uh, counseling and support services uh, to try and prevent uh, youth suicide, uh, which is actually a really big deal. Uh, I, I think uh, uh, you know, the, uh, gay youth commit suicide at about three times the rate of straight youth. So it's, it's a big deal. Um, there, uh, the Trevor Project has a much more dashing celebrity spokesperson um, in the uh, person of Daniel Rad Radcliffe, uh, you know, Mr. Harry Potter. Uh, and and uh, it, it's a great charity, and I think uh, it's worth some donations, especially if you want to be uh, helping out uh, you know, your young, young relatives who may be potentially dealing with uh, all their family angst this season. So that's my pick. Awesome. That's that's great. And uh, I think I think there's a lot of angst over over gay issues or not. But honestly, if you can help people out, I think you should. So even if you, no matter how you feel, you know, giving to a project like this is a good thing. So yeah, well said, James. What are your picks? I got a, just a couple of quick ones. Um, first of all, uh, the pragmatic programmers finally had. Uh, I guess the rights to release their original book, The Pragmatic Programmer, as an ebook on their own site, uh, which is awesome because, you know, it was originally published by someone else and they just didn't have it. And um, uh, this, to me, is one of the classic all time great books uh, of programming and so many things that, that we just take for granted, like dry and fix broken windows and things like that, come out of this. So. Uh, if you haven't read it, it's a great excuse to grab it and read it now. Or if you have read it, it's a great excuse to grab it and read it again. <laughs> you know, because uh, it's kind of one of those timeless programming books that's always great. So I think that's cool that they uh, they finally got that and and uh, that it's more accessible to us now, which is awesome. So uh, that was one of my questions of the mysteries of the universe is why why pragmatic programmers didn't publish that book. Yeah, they. I think they actually formed their company after they made that Yes. Book. Yeah, I was going to say, they originally published with Addison Wesley, and I right. think they probably had to negotiate something with them in order to do that. Right. So, yeah, they didn't own the rights to it. But, yeah, I'm so glad to see it out now. Two, as we've said, it's holiday season, and, uh, you know, we're going to be doing gifts and stuff. A lot of people exchange gifts this time of year. I've been looking for cool, interesting toys for my kid, because I have a kid now. Uh, and I found Wired had a pretty neat article called Tech Toys for Kids from Tots to Teens. Uh, and it just had some neat toys in there that, that I wasn't uh, totally aware of. And uh, I, I never would have known the Furby was back or uh, things like mm. that. But uh, but aside from you know uh, stuff like that, there's kind of some unusual things in here, like these 
almost origami-like kits that you can use to make critters and stuff. Anyways, there was a couple of neat ideas that I got into while I was doing a little online Christmas shopping the other day, so I thought other parents might like to look at them. That's it. Those are my picks. Great. Well, I'll go next because I told Aaron he could go last. Um, my first pick is I was doing some coaching the other day, and uh, the guy I was doing the coaching with had pulled in a couple of um, gems that that I hadn't seen before, and one of them was called Rollify. It's R-O-L-I-F-Y. And uh, it's it's kind of a neat DSL. It provides a neat DSL for um, defining roles um, and and applying those roles to objects. So it's not just a user that has a role, but it's a user that has a role, you know, scope to a particular object or set of objects. And it looked kind of cool, so I'm, I'm going to pick that, and I'll put a link in the show notes. The other one that I want to pick, if you're curious about Rails 4 and you want to see a really good talk about it, is actually Aaron's talk at uh, Aloha Ruby. And um, it's, you know, it's not that long, standard length for a talk, I guess. But uh, he goes over a lot of the stuff that we talked about, um, some of it in more detail and some of it in less. But I, I think it'll clarify some of the stuff if you just want exposure to it again after listening to our show. Um, Aaron, what are your picks? I pick my nose. <laughs> good, good thing it's a podcast and not TV. Jeez, yeah, if we had that video. <laughs> uh, okay, let's see. Um, I don't know if I've picked this one before, but I would pick uh, ScreenFlow. You guys ever use that? Yeah, it's great. Yes. That is my favorite video making program ever. It's the best. Um, and then also, I want to pick like. Lately, I've been playing with embedded systems, and I would like to pick the Beagle Bone, which is it's similar to oh, what is the other one? The the Raspberry Pi, similar to the Raspberry Pi. It's just an embedded system that runs embedded Linux, uh, but the Beagle Bone is by TI. It has an ARM processor, and what's kind of cool is it has like the exact the footprint is an Altoid stin, like. It's the size of an Altoid stint, so you can put it in an Altoid stint if you want to. But I've been using that to uh, control my salami box. <laughs> and it has an Ethernet cable, has a USB um, host port, so you can like plug in peripherals if you want to. But it's it's just totally fun. Like you can SSH in and do any type of Linux stuff you want. Like I'm running Ruby on it now. Uh, it's a lot of fun. So yeah. Awesome. awesome. Okay. Well, I I think that's it. So uh, we'll wrap the show up. Thanks for coming again, Aaron. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank yeah, thanks a lot. It's it's always fun to have you on the show. I really appreciate your your uh, expertise and your your fun personality. So thank you. Really appreciate it. All right. Well. Um, I guess we'll wrap up the show. We'll catch y'all next week and enjoy the holidays. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. Catch you later.